Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 148. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you of the usual things. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. You can like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just go out and look for Brian McClanahan where you can watch this podcast as well as listen to it. If you go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, you can find all my social media buttons. So you can find all my social media platforms there at the top of the page. You can also give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders in American History, and a free audiobook read by yours truly of the same title. So pick those things up. If you want to support the Brian McClanahan Show, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. Throw a few pennies my way. If you want to support the Brian McClanahan Show and you want to get some cool stuff out of it besides the podcast, you can go to mclanahanacademy.com. Signing up there is always free. And, of course, I do have some courses for sale, and more courses will be forthcoming. So you'll get notified for that if you do sign up for the Academy. Also, you can go to learntruehistory.com, T-R-U-E, Learn True History, and you can find some more courses offered by yours truly. Uh, you'll also get classes by Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, other great liberty-minded people. So go on out there to learn true, T-R-U-E, history.com, and sign up for a subscription there. And, of course, you can always get your McClanahan gear at redbubble.com. Go on out to redbubble, redbubble.com, and put in my name, Brian McClanahan, and my logo will come up for the Brian McClanahan Show, and you can get some pretty cool gear, T-shirts, clocks, coffee cups, whatever you want, stationery, it's got it. So going out to redbubble.com, get you some McClanahan gear. And if you get that gear and you send it to me on social media, if you follow me on Twitter and you tweet me a picture of you wearing my gear, I'll tweet it around. Everybody can see. So please do that and help support the Brian McClanahan Show. Okay, well, today I'm going to do something, um, talk about an essay that I wrote about three years ago. Um, And so it was dedicated to a week that we were doing at the Abbeville Institute where we were talking about the Tuckers of Virginia. And so I wrote a little piece entitled The Tuckers of Virginia, and I'm going to read a good portion of that piece. In fact, the whole thing. It's not long. I'm going to read that. And I'm going to talk about the Tuckers and some of the essays I mentioned in the piece in a little more detail, because if there is an American family that people should know about, I mean, we, we look at dynasties in America, and oftentimes you hear about the Adams family. You've got John Adams, uh, and you've got uh, all of John Quincy Adams, and then you've got... Uh, all the descendants of the Adams and all the historians and people that served in government and others, diplomats and other people in the Adams family, uh, that's considered to be an American dynasty. You've got the Bushes, which, of course, are related to the Adams. You've got the Clintons. You've got all these people nowadays that uh, believe that I mean, we need American Kennedys. We need American dynasties. Um, and there are some American dynasties that are actually worth studying. And one of them would be the Tuckers. Another one would be the Byards, we've already talked about in this podcast. But uh, there are a few that are worthy of actual study. Um, the, the Clintons and the Bushes, not so much. The Adams get a lot of publicity because they were able to market themselves well. And, of course, New England won the war, and so the Adams became this dominant political family and of course the Kennedys because of image more than image more than substance it's really nothing to the Kennedys other than image 
they were uh, po- great politicians. I was just watching an interview that Pat Buchanan did with Richard Nixon the other day, where Richard Nixon said, you know, Ed- Edward Kennedy is the real politician of that bunch. Bobby and John F. Kennedy were basically worthless, uh, but Edward Kennedy was the politician of the group. Of course, when he's not running his car off the road and killing people, um, you know, getting away with it, that's something else. But uh, anyways, the the fact is we do have political dynasties, and we like those things, uh, and Americans have had some pretty good political dynasties. And the Tuckers of Virginia, there are also Tuckers in South Carolina related. The Tuckers of Virginia, though, were one of the great political dynasties. They produced all the way from the 18th into the 20th century great political minds, not politics in terms of kneecapping or gaining votes, but real principled statesmen. And that's where the Tuckers, the Byards of Delaware, that's where they stand out. They were producing statesmen uh, rather than politicians. And so we need to remember that. Um, one of the things that oftentimes we get caught up in is and is conflating politics with states statesmanship. And they're two different things. Uh, Ron Paul really was a statesman because Ron Paul was principled. Uh, and, you know, you look at, there's very few of them in Washington, D.C. You might say, even if you don't agree with everything he does, Justin Amash is fairly principled. And so he stands with whatever principles. He's a statesman. Even when he doesn't get his way, he's still a statesman. You find very few of those people when it comes to the to politics in Washington, D.C., uh, and that's because, you know, the people that often get involved in politics now are not disinterested. They're, they're getting involved for a particular reason. Oftentimes it's to make money. Look, when Barack Obama entered office, he was worth less than a million dollars. Now the guy is worth, uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars uh, because he's been able to parlay his presidency into big bucks. The Clintons were the same way. Um, and these, that's, that's creating American aristocrats. Uh, so it's it's oftentimes this is why Trump was seen as someone who was a, a bit different because he's already a billionaire. It didn't really matter if he was president or not. He didn't need the money. He already had the money. So what the heck did it matter? I remember when he first announced his candidacy, he made that point. Look, I'm really rich. I don't need it. I don't need the job. I don't need the, the job to get money. I just believe in the things I'm talking about. Now, was Trump a statesman? Uh, I mean, I think you could say that uh, his principles are... Uh, wavering at times, but regardless, he's disinterested in that he's simply doing what he thinks is best for the United States, not for his own benefit or for some ideological premise. He's not a Marxist, for example, an ideologue. Uh, he's something else. And so when you look at statesmen, I mean, this is what, uh, this is how the founding generation conceived of American statescraft. And so this is why Thomas Jefferson called Andrew Jackson a dangerous man, because he could see in him a real politician, not a statesman, but a politician. And so that's what we need to be concerned about in American politics. And the Tuckers of Virginia were these disinterested statesmen. I think you say John Taylor of Caroline was that, John Randolph of Roanoke was that. Uh, You have them in American history, but they're few and far between. Really what you have more than anything else now are politicians. I think one of the, one of the great statesmen of the 20th century was Sam Irvin of North Carolina. Um, you may not agree with everything that he supported, but he was a real statesman. So this is, this is where we need to, to look at statescraft and politics. And if we don't have statesmen, we're in trouble. I mean, John C. Calhoun really was a statesman. 
If we don't have statesmen, we're in trouble because our political system allows for people to come in and take your stuff simply by voting for it. So I'm going to read this little piece that I wrote on the Tuckers of Virginia. It was published all the way back in June of 2015, so almost three years ago. If any American today were to listen to the nationalists in charge of either the political class or American education at large, they would get the sense that it is settled science that the American Union is comprised of one people held together by a national government with uncontested sovereignty over all matters, foreign and domestic. Certainly, states and local governments can make laws, but those laws are subject to review by the national judiciary and can be declared invalid at any time if a national judge rules that the law in question violates the prevailing national opinion in regard to any matter, political, social, or economic. Not even national laws crafted by the national legislature can stop the black-robed federal adjudicators. It has not always been this way. There are hundreds of dusty tomes buried deep in both research and public libraries that expose this position as a fraud, at least in regard to the federal American system as designed by the founding generation. And not all lawyers, legal scholars, or judges used to be corrupt, corrupted by nationalist propaganda. There were hardy souls who effectively refuted the nationalist lie made popular by Alexander Hamilton, John Marshall, Joseph Story, Daniel Webster, and Abraham Lincoln. Many of these works are available for free online, but knowing who to look for and where to look can be a daunting task. Finding quotations on the Constitution by any of the nationalists is a simple web search away, but their opponents have been relegated to the dark corners of acceptable thought, tarnished with charges of treason or worse. Most of them are Southern. This makes their ideas, long considered outmoded or frankly dead by the modern academy, not only dangerous to the political class and the ruling establishment, but politically incorrect. Now, Aside here, I'm, I'm not reading this now. Uh, I did talk about in July of 2016, I did a podcast, episode 36, read these books on the Constitution where I talked about one of the Tuckers, St. George Tucker. So I'm building on that here as well. Back to the piece. This is unjust, and thousands, hopefully millions of Americans, are finally realizing that the American Federal Republic, as crafted, does not mesh with the political monstrosity on the banks of the Potomac River today. The Federal Leviathan is a cancer, the very thing most of the founding generation wished to avoid and diligently argue would never happen even if the Constitution were ratified in 1788. It wouldn't have been, it would have been, wouldn't have been, uh, had anyone listened to the real Federalists of the antebellum period, namely those who believed in a federated republic of independent states held together in a union for expressly delegated purposes outlined in a Constitution of limited powers. There were exponents of this position, North and South, in 1788. A compelling case could be made that every proponent of the Constitution accepted this position during the state ratifying conventions, including the arch-nationalists James Wilson of Pennsylvania and Hamilton of New York. What happened after the Constitution was adopted is another story, but no family held more firmly to the argument that the Constitution was, and is, a compact between independent states with expressly delegated powers than the Tucker family of Virginia. They deserve our attention, and thus a week-long focus on their political, social, and constitutional beliefs. So again, this particular piece was dedicated to a week where we had, and I'm going to talk about a couple of these pieces, published uh, pieces by the Tuckers. Starting today, the Abbey Review and the Clyde Wilson Library will feature pieces written by or on the Tuckers. The first great constitutional scholar of the family, St. George Tucker, is the focus of Clyde Wilson's piece on Monday at the Clyde Wilson Library. St. George Tucker wrote the first comprehensive study 
on the, of the Constitution after, after its adoption as a corollary to Blackstone's famous commentaries on English law. His edition of Blackstone was widely read and used in legal studies for much of antebellum American history. St. George Tucker was friends with Thomas Jefferson and a true Republican of the old Virginia order. His view of the Constitution of the United States should be standard reading for anyone interested in the detailed examination of the compact fact of the Constitution, perhaps even more so than John Taylor's new views on the Constitution of the United States, a study written in response to John Adams' highly centralized exposition on American constitutionalism. By the way, St. George Tucker was also John Randolph of Roanoke's stepfather. Tuesday's piece is written by St. George Tucker's oldest son, Henry St. George Tucker. Henry St. George Tucker was appointed to the law faculty for both the College of William and Mary and the University of Virginia. He served as a member of Congress, as the president of the, of the Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals, and less conspicuously as a captain in the War of 1812. He was a prominent member of the second generation of Americans, reared in the Virginia Republican tradition and a staunch defender of originalism. His piece comes from his 1843 lectures on constitutional law and is, well, is a well-regarded and argued attack on the one-people thesis of early American history. He expertly shows that an American people has never existed and that the colonies, far from being an amorphous mass of land under the singular direction of the crown, shared no allegiance to one another, nor did any colonial American think of an American nation or an American people. That's a very important position to make, and a very important point to make, I should say, uh, to understand. Wednesday's essay is by St. George, George Tucker's second son, uh, Nathaniel Beverly Tucker, better known as a writer of fiction than for his essays on the Constitution or political philosophy. His The Partisan Leader was highly influential among Southern secessionists, particularly in the 1850s, and Edgar Allan Poe called Tucker's lesser-known novel, George Balcombe, quote, the best American novel in an 1837 review in the Southern Literary Messenger. Beverly Tucker also served as a member of the law faculty at the College of William & Mary and counted among his contacts some of the most important men in the Union, among them President John Tyler and Secretary of State Abel P. Upshur. His 1839 treatise, A Discourse on the Genius of the Federative System of the United States, reprinted by the Abbeville Review, is a call for the men of Virginia to lead a renaissance of federalism in America, for Tucker rightly expresses his belief in the compact fact of the Constitution. It was Virginia that birthed Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Henry, and a host of other great Americans. To Tucker, it made sense that Virginia would be at the vanguard of a renewed call for real federalism. And as a side note, this is something that Calhoun often said, Virginia would only lead us again, because Virginia was the leading colony and the leading state when it came to real federalism. Henry St. George Tucker's son, John Randolph Tucker, authored the Thursday piece at the Abbey Review, an 1887 commencement address delivered at South Carolina College, now the University of South Carolina, titled The Olds and the New South. John Randolph Tucker was Attorney General for Virginia both before and during the War for Southern Independence and a member of the United States Congress after the war. His address is not only a sweeping history of the antebellum period, the causes of the war, and the ramifications of Southern defeat, but a clarion call for Southerners to defend their heritage and the principles for which the South bled during the war, namely the original understanding of the Constitution, as outlined by John C. Calhoun, a personal friend of Tucker's. The final installment of Tucker Week is by Henry St. George Tucker III, John Randolph Tucker's only son. Henry St. George Tucker III was a member of Congress, the president of the American Bar Association, and the dean of the law school at Washington and Lee University and George Washington University. His 1927 essay is a thorough shredding of the 
expansion of the general welfare clause made famous by Joseph Story's commentaries on the Constitution. No one has surpassed Tucker's clarity of argument either before or after his essay was written. It also must be noted that each of the Tuckers were not only great legal scholars, they were devout Christians. That is apparent in their writing. Several of the Virginia Tuckers later served as men of the cloth, with Beverly Dandridge Tucker, nephew of John Randolph Tucker, appointed as the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Southern Virginia. His sons would be prominent members of the Episcopal Church. Son Henry St. George Tucker would be the presiding bishop for the American Episcopal Church. And another son, Francis Bland Tucker, was a famous composer and rector of Christ Church in Savannah, Georgia, until his death in 1984. All five pieces in our Tucker Week are scholarly. They are meant to be chewed and digested, read and reread, and hopefully serve to what to whet the appetite for more research into this important Virginia family. They provide enough intellectual ammunition to destroy any nationalist argument. The Tuckers are a true American legal and ecclesiastical dynasty in need of a requiem mass. Their work, not that of Story or Marshall, should be required reading for American legal scholars, and that can start here. So that piece, again, I wrote in June of 2015, and it was designed, and I, and I had designs at one point to do more with the Tuckers, and it's just other things, I've, I've done other things and written other works, and so the Tuckers have kind of taken a back seat. But uh, these pieces, in particular when you look at Nathaniel Beverly's Tucker piece, which is a speech that, that was given uh, on August 26, 1838, um, it's the title, The Discourse on the Genius of the Federative System of the United States. And he talks about how important federalism was and how important freedom and liberty are and how the only thing that can maintain those things is government. He says, gentlemen, freedom in its simplest social form is an affair of government. The philosophy of social freedom is the philosophy of self-government. If this were all, this alone were enough to show the difficulty of the problem. So self-government, he says, thinking locally, acting locally. Understanding how to maintain freedom. Understanding what that means, how to address it. That virtue is important. If you're going to have a republic, and this is something that Again, we get into this idea of republicanism, and there's different types, and this is a very Roman position on republicanism. Virtue becomes extremely important in a Roman understanding of republicanism. You have to understand virtue to understand what these men thought about republicanism. And when you look at his brother's piece, from the 1843 Lectures on the Constitution of the United States. When you look at that, um, when you look at what he says, he says, In the history of the two great parties which have divided the people of the United States ever since the adoption of the present Constitution, a constant struggle is observable in relation to the character of the government. The federal party, so-called by a strange perversion of the use of the terms, have always been inclined to represent the United States as constituting one people instead of a confederacy of states, while their opponents, formerly called anti-federalists but more recently known as the Democratic or Republican Party, have ever strenuously contended that the Constitution was a compact or the result of a compact between the states who retain their sovereignty. 
and all the rights of sovereignty which they have not expressly transferred to the federal government. Thus we find Mr. Webster, the great champion of the federal party, pronouncing that the doctrine that the states are parties of the Constitution is refuted by the Constitution itself in the very front, declares it is ordained and established by the people of the United States. So far from saying that it is established by the government of the several states, it does not even say that it is established by the people of the several states, but it pronounces that it is established by the people of the United States in the aggregate. Tucker goes on, the foregoing passages cited here not for the purpose of exposing its disingenuous sophisms, but merely to present the views of one of the great parties of the country in relation to our federal constitution. It is their favorite position that the Constitution of the United States was ordained and adopted not by the states in their sovereign capacities, but emphatically, as the preamble declares, by the people of the United States. And it is this position which it behooves every lover of truth and of the rights of the states most vigorously to assail. And of course, that is the nationalist position. But as we've known, as we see, even as St. George Tucker wrote in his view of the Constitution of the United States, this is completely false. And as Henry St. George Tucker outlines in this particular essay, completely false. Now imagine having a law professor that would stand up and say these things. And of course, Tucker cites Abel Upshur, because Abel Upshur ripped apart Joseph Story's one people thesis. And that's actually, uh, he he reads a tremendous amount from uh, Abel Upshur's book in this particular essay. And then you look at a piece written in 1927, actually delivered at the Georgia Bar Association at Tybee Island, 1927, over three days, uh, he delivered this speech, and he rips apart Joseph Story. In fact, he uses Joseph Story against himself. He rips apart the idea, and, and what he does, not just rip apart Joseph Story, he rips apart a nationalist argument of the General Welfare Clause by using Joseph Story against himself. And so this is a masterful piece, one that really deserves our attention. Again, if you want to go out and read real good legal scholars, read the Tuckers, uh, because they do such a fantastic job outlining the inconsistencies of the nationalists. Again, it would be wonderful if our law schools would actually teach this, but they don't. You have to get it in places like this podcast or or through Learn True History or through McClanahan Academy. These are where you're going to get these things. Your law schools are not going to tell you this. Your law schools have been taken over by nationalists who have no conception of originalism except as it's a negative thing. They don't. I bet you, I can almost guarantee you that not many of the law professors in America today have ever read St. George Tucker or Abel Upshur, or any of the Tuckers, for that matter. They just haven't read it. So, when you go back and you look at the Tuckers, and you look at these things and understand them, John Randolph Tucker, uh, who had his piece on the Old New South, it really doesn't fit with the Constitution, though he does get into the idea of limited government, and the Federal Republic, and these type of things. But really, if you want, read these books on the Constitution, look at that particular podcast episode, episode 36, I think it was, one of the earliest podcasts of the Brian McClanahan Show. The Tuckers of Virginia are important for understanding real federalism. Another great uh, American political family from Virginia were the Barbers. Uh, Philip Pendleton Barber is the best of the bunch, but uh, there's a wonderful little biography of Philip Pendleton Barber by William Belko that's out there now. But uh, Philip 
Pendleton Barber is really good, and maybe one day I'll I'll talk about that. But um, it, it's an excellent book. Uh, so I would highly recommend you get that one too. But uh, when you look at the Tuckers, you get a firm understanding of what the Constitution really meant, and it wasn't a distortion. I mean, these Tuckers were saying this all the way back in the 18th century. They were talking about uh, you know this is what the Constitution meant, regardless of what. Other people said about the South or about American constitutionalism, the Tuckers were spot on in their analysis of the compact fact of the Constitution. That's the important thing to get out of this. The compact fact of the Constitution. Don't let the enemy ever dissuade you of that. They'll say, it's the compact theory of the Constitution. Theirs is just a theory. No, it's the fact as outlined by the original documents from Philadelphia and from the ratifying conventions. It is the compact fact. What Southerners were arguing through people like Tucker, the Tuckers, and Store, and uh, the Tuckers, and uh, and Taylor, and of course Upshur, and re- and refuting Story and Marshall and others, Webster, what they're arguing is that you know, look, it's a compact between states. There's there's no way you can you can get around that. But of course, uh, that is the main debate. As Tucker said, it's still the main debate today at least philosophically. In practice, we have two national parties that really don't care about federalism. This is why I say you got to think locally, act locally. you got to start changing things on the local level. You can't worry about the federal level. No one who loves liberty will ever run for federal office. You can't do it. It's got to be something else. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. And read the Tuckers!